on the one hand, that gave me a little bit of notoriety because I was, I was training Valley departments in technical rescue at that point and had been for a while. I think as a trainer, when you're, when you're teaching people a subject, if you've actually done it, it gives you a lot of credibility. Um, I actually even got recognized in a couple of bars after that. <laughs> they were like, dude, are you that guy? Like, uh, yeah, that's me. Um, that call planted the seeds for, for kind of a mental health breakdown for me. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And today I have a guest who served as a contract wildland firefighter and worked as a firefighter for 27 years in the city of Scottsdale, Arizona. He was also a paramedic and a rescue technician assigned to a technical rescue team that included working out of a helicopter. In addition, much like every other fire service member out there, he's got a number of interesting off-the-job pursuits that include motorcycle racing, bicycle racing, rock climbing, and competitive archery. He retired from Scottsdale, Arizona in 2019. Is that right? Uh, beginning of 2020, 20, February 2020, I retired. Yeah. I'll, I'll clip that in. He retired from Scottsdale, Arizona in 2020 and is now a self-described writer, advocate, and storyteller. And these days, man, has he got some stories to tell. As far as a writer goes, he's published a book, Flame and Fortune, How the Fire Service Almost Killed Me that was released uh, in March of this year. Please welcome to the log book, uh, Rick Booker. Rick, good to see you. Robbie, thanks for having me. I've been watching you for a while. I love everything that, you, that you've done. It's awesome. The content is great. I've followed it. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's an honor to be here with you. Uh, well, thanks, brother. This is, a, you know, this is a topic ultimately we're going to wind up getting into that I haven't been able to explore with much, um, I think mostly because a lot of people are hesitant to talk about it. But uh, over the last couple of years, at least I, where I discovered you through the Cleared Hot podcast, you've been very open about your experiences and what you went through and the, the, the aftermath of that. And certainly want to talk about that. But uh, I appreciate you being here and, and sharing that story, because I think it is something that people need to hear more and more about and understand better collectively as a fire service. So thank you for sharing your story and being the storyteller that you are. You bet. Absolutely. So uh, before we really get started, I want to highlight a couple of, maybe a disclaimer here. I, I know uh, I worked with a Rick Butcher who spells oh, your really? name exactly like you do. You, you pronounce really? your name Booker, yes, Book, but Booker. his name is Butcher, Rick, B-U-C-H-E-R. So this is not that Rick Butcher from Chesterfield. And it's not the Rick Butcher who's been on this podcast, who is a, a fire chief in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Right. So Rick, yeah. you are the Rick Booker from Scottsdale, Arizona. So, uh, all those names are eerily familiar, but uh, very close to each other. So, uh, first of all, let's let's talk about where you're at today. Uh, you, you know, we connected a couple of weeks ago when I was hitting the road on vacation, and it looked like we were in the same part of the globe, anyway. But uh, where, yeah. what are you doing over the last couple of weeks, and share with what what you've been doing? Yeah. So the last, I, I actually just finished the project yesterday. I've been recording the audiobook version of Flame and Fortune, and I kind of struggled to find a quiet place. I had a couple of uh, possible studios that I could have used. Uh, those kind of fell through and being a do-it-yourselfer, like 
so many firefighters, I, you know, I just figured, man, I'm going to, I'll order a microphone and, and do this thing myself. Um, so the quiet place wound up, uh, being here in Idaho. So I'm kind of in, I've, I've been crossing back and forth between Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming for the, about the last month with fishing and enjoying Yellowstone national park and all that. Uh, but yeah, I did the recording here overlooking Henry's Lake in, uh, in Eastern Idaho. If anybody wants to look that up, that's where I've been. And it's been just, just a beautiful, real peaceful, quiet place. Um, but also kind of inspiring, uh, because it's reading, reading a book that you wrote about yourself and particularly something trauma related, like the one that I, that I've put out is, is challenging. You know, you're kind of, you're kind of reliving some of that trauma again as you, as you read through it. And I'll tell you what, Rob, I've, I've read the book about 10 times now between editing it and, and running it by a few folks and, and getting ideas and, and making changes. Um, and there's still some, some chapters that are, that are tough, but yeah, this place that I'm in super peaceful and it's, it's just been a great place to record. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I, and I was uh, just in. I uh, kind of did a road trip up to, to Montana to that Black Rifle Coffee Company <clears throat> up in Kalispell. And uh, great, great venue, a great part of the world. I've never really spent much time up there, but uh, just dry, simply driving around is that kind of mental clarity of yeah. your mind. I'd, I listened to podcasts for maybe a half of the time and had nothing on on the radio for the other half of the time, just kind of enjoying the peaceful serenity of that part of the world. So we'll get into to your book a little bit more, but let's go get in the Wayback Machine a little bit and talk about your fire service career and, and how you got started in that and uh, how you got involved in doing all the stuff that you did. Oddly enough, kind of our careers probably, I didn't have quite the intensity you had listening to some of your history, but I did a lot of the same things, technical rescue team, paramedic. Yep. How, how did you get involved in the fire service back in the day? Well, I kind of, I was, I was at a point where I had moved out of my parents' house and I was working in a bicycle shop and just kind of spinning my wheels. I was going to community college to, to study for, um, a business degree that, that I didn't want, uh, to get a job that I knew I wouldn't like doing. And one of the guys at the, at the shop was a Phoenix fireman. And he said, Hey, if any guys want to do a ride along sometime, you're welcome to show up. And that's, that's actually how the book starts, uh, in a way. But, um, yeah, I went and did that ride along and of course nothing happened. You, you got riders curse and, and, uh, we go through, you know, pretty much a whole Saturday with, with no calls and, and no action. Uh, but at, probably one of the busiest fire stations in Phoenix that now is shut down it, for the day because right. you're there. And, uh, I was just getting ready to leave and, and the tones dropped for a working fire. So we, uh, we run out to the truck and we, we pull in in front of a model home and there's smoke pumping out of the front door and, and the guys go in and do an interior attack. They come out high five and covered in insulation. And, and, uh, I'm looking at this whole thing go down and I realize this, this is what I need to be doing. Like, I, I don't want to follow that business route anymore. I, I want to get into the fire service. So from there, I actually walked into my local fire station and, and asked if there were any jobs there. And they, they sent me off to, to go get my EMT cert, which I did. And then I went back, asked again, and they asked if I had taken any fire science classes. Nope. So I went back and, uh, 
Fire hydraulics and apparatus was actually my first class that I took. So you talk about, you know, jumping right into, you know, an advanced level kind of a class, but I loved it and went back to the station again, asked if there were any jobs there. And at the time, Rural Metro was protecting Scottsdale uh, under contract, private fire protection company, and they were hiring reserves at that point. So I got hired on as a reserve. And so what what does a reserve do? So you're not you're not on a shift, you're just kind of a a reserve from a you're you're on call for the guys that take off or what, you, how does that work? You are as a reservist. <clears throat> Pardon me. And and the the reserve model that that uh was present in Scottsdale the the best thing that I can kind of relate it to is is being a maybe a step above a volunteer department. Uh, that's supplementing a paid, uh, you know, paid portion of that department. So you had full-time firefighters, uh, but reserves supplemented the full-time staffing when they were off uh, sick or injured or vacation. Once a reserve got shift qualified, they could do that. Uh, Otherwise, reserves were paged to respond to fire scenes, and we would do stuff like wrap the trucks up, help with salvage and overhaul, just, you know, another set of hands at a, at a fire scene. And, you know, once in a while, you know, you, you get a big one and, and you wind up doing interior fire attack. Um, but as a, as a red shirt reserve, when I first started, I wasn't doing that. And then after I went through my fire one and two Academy, of course, got a blue shirt and I was able to go in and, and do interior operations. And so that got you qualified to be a, a jump seat firefighter and work a, a shift, if you will. It did. After that. And then okay. the pretty much the entire full time staff for Scottsdale uh, under the rural metro years was hired out of the out of the reserve pool. So I was a reserve for almost three years. But there was a period of, of a couple of years there where as a shift qualified reserve, I worked more than full time guys did. I was working 18, 20 shifts a month, um, and rural had them had you over a barrel because they're paying they're paying low wages. They're providing no uh, benefits, no time off, and they know that um, their reserve pool wants nothing more than to to become full time firefighters, and they'll do anything to to get there. And I did, and in that case, it was almost three years of of you know, suffering and grinding away. Paying the dues. Yeah. Is it, it, it is the pay, uh, when you transition to the, to the, to the full-time job with rural Metro, does the pay increase as well? Or is that, or do you just wind up with the benefits and the leave and that sort of thing? Yeah. The, the paid, uh, the pay did increase and, and mind you, it's been almost 20 years since I worked for rural. But, uh, when I started in, uh, in 93 as a reserve, um, man, I think I was making, I want to say I was making three twenty-five an hour, <laughs> Wow, <laughs> which is yeah. laughable, you know? Um, but then, yeah, when you, when you got hired full time with them, you got a pay raise, you got your benefits, uh, but what you, and, and you had the ability to, to purchase stock through rural Metro and you had a 401k that you could contribute to. And they had a, they had a match. They did a, they did a match each year. And, um, but if the stock wasn't doing well that year, you didn't get a match on your 401k. 
Um, so it was a, it, you know, it's an interesting combination be- between corporate America and, and um, public safety. And I think that that model works for, for small communities. But at that point, you know, in 05, when the transition to Scottsdale fire happened and the city took over its own municipal department, we had, we had far outgrown the resources that were being provided by rural. We didn't have enough manpower. We didn't have enough stations. We didn't have enough staffing on the trucks. Um, and it, and what we had to compare ourselves to was Phoenix fire right next door. That's a little, a, a relatively not small department. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. So yeah. you take, um, you take a small department like ours and compare it to a, to a big department that was, you know, it's nationally recognized. Um, and it was, it was both good and bad for us. And it, it was bad because, because in a lot of ways we were looked down upon by other firefighters in the Valley because at, at first, um, we weren't part of the labor union. We, we weren't part of the IFF. Um, once that happened, uh, in, uh, right after the turn of centuries, about, about, about Oh three, uh, we, we formed local 3878 and kind of, we got some acknowledgement for that, but our staffing model still was such that we couldn't even participate in the automatic aid system. Cause we had three, three people on fire trucks. Were you still, was that still a rural Metro organization or had they made the transition to the we um, spent the last couple of years uh, with rural and we had a, we had a contract with rural. We had a union contract with them, but we knew that we would still be better off working for a municipal department. And a big part of that was uh, the pension that put us into the PSPRS, which was public safety um, retirement system with Arizona. Uh, but it also got us better equipment. Uh, better training, um, better benefits, a better schedule. I, I mean, everything was better. We didn't even have a C shift at that point. When we transitioned, we, we had a B shift. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just the, the change was remarkable. It, in, wow. in almost every way, it was an improvement. Did, um, did m- most or all of those, uh, firefighters and officers who work for rural Metro at the time, did they make the transition over to working for the city? Just about or, everybody. Or was there did. a, just about everybody. Was there did. a, you had to apply for a job we or did, did they man. just kind of go, okay. We had to apply for our own jobs. At that point wow. I'd been protecting Scottsdale for 10 years and, and here they are, you know, okay, time to test. The applications and open. Go we go. had to do a physical agility test. Uh, we had to do an interview with the, with the incoming chief. Um, you know what, for the most part, it was, uh, a technicality. It was a hoop that we had to jump through, but there were about, there were about half a dozen guys that, that didn't make it. And I'd say, you know, a couple of them deserve to, to probably, uh, work somewhere else, but there were some good guys that didn't make it. And, um, and that was sad because at that point, you know, there were, there were people with well over 10 years on that were testing to work in Scottsdale. When they just lost that institutional knowledge and ten years of experience like that for for a a person who's conceivably coming in from day one. Yeah, and here's the interesting thing uh, currently about Scottsdale: they're about to lose that institutional knowledge again 
because we're coming up on 20 years, man. People are ready to retire. So you hired, retirement wave. you know, you hired, you know, let's say you hired 225 people and in coming up in 05, you're going to, you know, they're going to have well over a hundred, 150 people that are eligible for retirement on July 1st. So 25. So that's their 20 year mark. Yep. So did, did you not get any time in service for the years or the years that those other guys and gals may have put in? It's, it's your, your, your day one, everybody's starting from the same benchmark. And they, you know, there was talk that, that Scottsdale was going to do a buyback and buy our time. And, you know, none of that, sorry, none of that ever materialized. You know, that would have been a huge outlay of cash for them to buy our time back Mm -hmm. into the, uh, into the pension system. If guys had prior military service, they could buy that time, but they had to pay for it themselves. And then eventually they, they did come out with a, with a buyback for us. But for me to buy 10 years, you know, it's been a while since I thought about this, but for me to buy back 10 years of service was going to cost me almost a quarter million dollars. Holy cow. So it was just, there's just no Bit way to cost do it. prohibitive. Oh yeah. Bit cost prohibitive. Yeah. Well, you were also uh, in that mix and listening to some of the uh, previous podcasts I heard you on, you, you were a wildland firefighter as well. Were you doing that while you were a, <clears throat> a reservist or did that transition as well into the time after you got hired on full-time with rural Metro? Yeah, I, I did that. I did wildland purely as a reserve for two seasons as a, um, as a seasonal with Tano National Forest. So in, uh, let's see, it would have been the summers of 94 and 95. I, I worked on a, on a type six engine crew and anybody that doesn't know what a type six is in the wildland, uh, arena, look it up or listen to this, uh, small, like picture, uh, like an F three fifty chassis, 300 gallons of water, uh, maybe 150 GPM pump, uh, kind of a light fast attack truck. So that's that, you know, a, a crew of three on one of those is what I worked on with, with Tano, but back on the rural side, I was qualified as, uh, as an engine boss for that type six engine in wildland as a reserve. Uh, but then I was also, I went on, uh, to be qualified as a squad boss and then a crew boss for a hand crew. So, you know, for all their shortcomings, rural did a, a hell of a lot of training. I mean, they were really good about that and it was all free for the taking. So I took it all, oh, man. Yeah. I, you know, I took, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 different wildland courses and I really got my game good with wildland. Yeah. Yeah. Then did you have to give up that wildland piece once you went on full-time with rural Metro or were you I, able to still do that? I did. And, but the mindset kind of, kind of shifted too. I mean, I was making better money, uh, to stay in town. So they, they do, they do still have resources that'll go out and get assigned. They're, they're listed with, uh, NWCA and, um, and they'll, they'll go out and, um, act as an engine crew. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't, I, I slipped away from wildland and started to con- really concentrate on technical rescue and being a medic. Gotcha. Where did you go to paramedic school? What was, uh, what was paramedic school like for you? Uh, it was interesting, man. We, um, so it was, it was sponsored, it was put on by rural. It was sponsored by rural. 
class was about 24 people. And I had a study group that was, uh, you know what? I had a drinking group that had a study problem. <laughs> we, <laughs> well, but we, we were notes there too. Yeah. But we were, you know, we were, we were the top five people in class. Um, so yeah, our, our group stuck together pretty well. We're all firefighters and, and there was a contingent in class that were ambulance, uh, employees from one of rural's sister companies, Southwest ambulance. And, um, yeah, I went and took my prerequisites, um, cardiology and pharmacology, and then tested and got accepted into medic school. And, and, um, the, here's my motivation to go to medic school. I'd been a full-time firefighter for about a year and I was on the technical rescue team. And oddly, my first day on the, on the technical rescue team was my first day as a booter. I got that assignment right away. Uh, and I'll tell Booter, you about that. In a minute. Explain it's, that one to me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's rare that that happens. But what was going on with with my station was the medics at the station on the team were getting to do all the cool stuff. They were they were flying in the helicopters. They were uh, getting assigned entry into confined space or trench collapse or any of that. While the EMTs kind of served a support role, and I wasn't into that for too long. So I, I started looking at medic school and, and, you know, I paid some dues. I, I had a couple of years where I, I became a medic and then I had to work at a non-TRT station until the spot that I had vacated opened back up. So when the opportunity to come back to that presented itself, I went back and it was, it was off to the races, but I, I did very well in my academy, in my full-time fire academy. Um, and they knew that I was in the technical rescue because as a reserve, I was going to all their drills, which started out as, Hey, uh, put Rick in the Stokes basket again, put Rick in the, you know, on the sked board and slide him through a tunnel again. You know, you start out paying your dues as, as a victim, but then as time went on, I, I started, you know, doing work on TRT calls because they would page reserves for those also. So I'm showing up and I'm present so were you, for that. Were you officially trained in TRT at that point or was, were you just experienced the, because you were the victim and they used you in that? Well, a, both. Avenue. And there's value to that. And I'll tell you how I, why I wound up a, a real TRT victim at one point in my career. Um, the, uh, in the Valley in in Arizona, they got some, something called the 200 course. And that's a 200 hour course that brings new TRT members up to speed with rope one and two, uh, trench awareness, high angle rescue, helicopter ops, swift water, all, you know, all the disciplines that are involved with, with technical rescue. And what I like to say is I went through the 2000 hour class because my, <laughs> my training was pieced together, but it was longer. So, you know, when I went, when I went to rope one and two, there was a longer period of time dedicated to that. And then when I went through trench, trench awareness, same thing, swift water training, same thing. And all of those classes were certified by the Arizona state fire marshal's office. So it wasn't like rural was just doing their own thing and, oh yeah, you can tie a bowling. So you're on the team, you know, it was legit training. So because I had that, uh, leading into my full-time, uh, assignment 
and because they knew I was into rock climbing and, and all that, they, they put me at the TRT station and I did, I, I finished first in my academy. So they, they just, they sent me to the best spot. Um, cool. and that's not fair because usually TRT guys have to wait, you know, five or 10 years into their career before they get that assignment. And I got it right away. Is that because it's, it's that competitive a position that everybody wants into? So you got to kind of pay more dues to get there. It is, man. It's pretty coveted. I mean, you think back to like emergency with Johnny and Roy and you watch that and you're like, man, that's the, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to be the guy getting lowered out of something and, or lowered down into something and doing, you know, pulling off all these crazy rescues. So many of people with that, that, that show has come up multiple times on this uh, this podcast. (laughs) They, how they've been, uh, Johnny and Roy were our preceptors back in the early paramedic days. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. And as soon as I became a TRT paramedic, it was on. I mean, I, I kind of, a couple years after I, you know, started as a, as a TRT medic, I started to take the lead role and I, and I was the guy. So our company officer would send me to do stuff. If they were just going to send one person in to do something more often than not, it, it, it became me by default. How, how busy was TRT in Scottsdale through those years? I mean, in Chesterfield, we, we developed a TRT a tactical rescue team, but the operational pace of that unit is such that it's really a shared resource. The, the people at the station, uh, that run an engine and a truck out of that house routinely on the rare occasion, a true TRT call comes up, then they jump on the rescue rig. How, how, how much is that similar to what you guys were doing? Or did you have a rescue rig that you were assigned to? And that was your ride. And you went to all the calls on that. And how often was that going out to, to true technical rescue type incidents. Right. Uh, we did have the option. And in most cases, we brought the engine with us. So we would split the crew uh, and have, you know, there and there were different staffing models over the years. I mean, when with rural there, I was the tech, the TRT station had an en- a three person engine and a two person AMBO or rescue. And when a TRT call would come in, usually uh, whoever was riding backwards on the engine would take the support truck. Um, and there were times where we, you know, if the engine was out, we split the rescue crew and, and one guy drove the Ambo and the other, you know, took the TRT truck. But we found that, that, you know, there was, there was stuff on the engine that we kind of needed, um, you know, for, for technical rescue calls. So I'd say, man, over 90% of the time that engine ran with the, with the support truck. And then even you know, after Scottsdale took over, the support truck was not, was, was not manned. So it was, co- it was co-manned with the, with the engine. Mm. How much from a uh, operational pace was it? Was it a, an event, yeah, an so incident a month the, or every the, other? You know, the interesting thing about rural was we not only covered Scottsdale, but we covered, we covered all of Maricopa County. So how, how big an area is that geographically? Would you man, say? Uh, it's hundreds of square miles and technically Mar- uh, Mar- you know, the entire city of Phoenix is within Maricopa County. So no, a lot of, a lot of, uh, states in, in the East have very small counties. Uh, but in the entire state of Arizona, I think there's, I think there's maybe 10 or 11 counties. 
So to give you an idea, you know, they're huge, right? So Maricopa County is very, very large, but what rural covered was at, you know, in my day was the unincorporated county areas, but we had lakes, rivers, mountains, and we responded to all of that. So, in a and, and we were the resource, you know, there were a lot of times where my crew was the only TRT crew that was responding to these calls in Phoenix and in the automatic aid system in the Valley. It's like a shotgun. You get a, you get a TRT call and there's, and there's four TRT companies with 16 people at least. Um, so yeah, there were, there, there was a 10 year period at the start of my career where we kind of did some cowboy stuff. I mean, we, you know, we've, if we were in rescue mode, we were in rescue mode, man. Now, if we were, if we went into recovery mode, yeah, you, you know, you're bound, you're still bound by all the OSHA regulations and, and, and all that. But yeah, there were times where we, we took some chances and, and pulled off some rescues. Um, but then when we trans, when we transferred in, into um, the muni- municipal department of Scottsdale, we did become part of the automatic aid system. So in a way, the call volume stayed the same. So we were running about the same number of TRT calls, but we were part of a much bigger resource after 05 when we did run calls. So a lot of times we were doing less unless we were the first TRT company or unless we were the first unit there that had arts or air rescue techs where we were going to have to fly and do something. What kind of, you, you mentioned flying twice now with helicopters. Who whose helicopter was it, and then what were you doing with the with the aviation assets? Yeah, at at the beginning, back in '93, we were flying with MCSO, which was Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, uh, exclusively, and they were they were running a Hughes 500, so like a a little bird, yeah. and loach, in, lo, some people call it loach. Yeah. Yep, and in order to in order to use that, we were we would ride the skids a lot. So if we were going to get inserted into a mountain environment, we we would ride on the on the outside of the of the aircraft on the skid. Um, it was external load only for patients. If we were going to evacuate somebody, it was via long line. So those who don't know, that's you know a seventy to ninety foot long half inch static rope that's hanging underneath the helicopter with a Stokes basket on the end of it. Uh, later. MCSO bought a Bell 407 that had a hoist on it. Uh, that started about maybe 90, 95, 96. We flew with, with that airship a lot. Uh, and then uh, Arizona DPS, Department of Public Safety, made themselves available to us. And same airframe, we were, we were flying a Bell 407 with those guys, but they didn't have a hoist. So if we needed to use them, to get into a call that they couldn't set down or at least one skid we would repel out of out of that helicopter so uh, in 05 during you know after the transition phoenix took over and i was actually on the first rescue in the mountains that we had after the transition and because we had become part of the automatic aid system, Phoenix showed up and there were Phoenix battalion chiefs, 
and uh, and a district chief. And they said, uh, well, you've got to use our helicopter with our techs. And my captain said, no, nah, we're using we're using our helicopter with my tech. And uh, why don't you just watch how it goes? So I forget what it was, man. I, it, it was a kid with a, with some kind of extremity injury, fell off a rock up on, you know, up on a mountain and they flew me in, dropped me off. I made access, treated, packaged the patient. They flew back in. We did a, we did a, sh- a short haul, which is the same thing as a long line, but we did a short haul, dropped the patient off right next to the Ambo, loaded, loaded the kid up and he took off and I'm walking away from the helicopter and my captain's looking at the Phoenix guys going, so, um, you got any questions? <laughs> like we can, <laughs> we're good. You know, we, we can do this. Um, so that transitioned into Scott's a certain number of Scottsdale, um, TRT guys getting trained to fly with Phoenix. So they, I think they realized that we could be a good resource for them. And mind you, at that point, we were training with both DPS and MCSO. So it was, it was happening almost every month. So I'd get helicopter training most of the time, twice a month. Oh, wow. Well, that became three times a month when we, when we hooked up with Phoenix because we didn't get rid of the other resources right away. So I wound up with with all three agencies, a lot of helicopter time. And then another airframe to deal with because Phoenix had an Augusta. Uh, It was a twin engine Augusta and it had a hoist. So we had kind of done it all. And, and yeah, we were, we were, we had a a lot of flight hours when we transitioned. Whose, whose helicopter was it? Was it the Phoenix fires or was was it? That was Phoenix fire. Yeah. And what, and, Technically, it's Phoenix PD. At that point, they had eleven aircraft, and there was one rotor wing aircraft in the in the air all the time, twenty four hours a day. Wow. Um, most of those aircraft were A stars, and that, that's a that's a smaller airframe that's not suited really well for for rescue work. Um, but they did have three Augustas, and then the one with the hoist was Firebird Ten, and that was what that was our preferred ship if we had a a mountain rescue or anything we had to, had to use a hoist for, we requested that. Wow. But it sounds like most of these technical rescue incidents were, you know, uh, wilderness related. Is that a fair statement or were, was it a mix of industrial or something else that, uh, that, that well, we, clearly was the TRT response? Yeah. And as a team, we did it all. So that includes confined space, trench collapse, swift water, high angle, elevated, so something like a power line tower, anything like that. Um, but mountain rescue was our, that was our bread and butter. We probably did 80%, 85% mountain rescue. And then the remainder was all those other disciplines. Other stuff. Yeah. yeah. As a, as a member of the, that, TRT shift. It sounds like you you were on an engine or an ambulance, depending on where you were riding that day. And that oh, was kind and by of the, the, way, the usual assignment. The, the beautiful thing about 05 was, 05 was we lost our ambulances. So I never had to ride around <laughs> on a box again. So, oh, I mean, nice. it, was, it was a dream come true to, to not have to, to work an ambulance ever again. 
beautiful. So who kept the ambulance? Was that still a, a rural metro function in, in the city of Scottsdale or they, did somebody else pick that? They contracted out? with PMT, which is a, a private provider. And then uh, let's see, they at some point they transitioned over to something called Maricopa Ambulance. And then now the kind of latest thing is, is uh, Scottsdale has acquired the CON and they're putting up some of their own ambulances now. So it's oh, all, wow. it's coming that, full uh, circle. <laughs> coming back, coming back to the origins. Yeah. yeah. And now today you're riding on the ambulance. Congratulations. But I'll tell you what, man, it's I, Robbie, as much as I, as much as I hate to admit this, the EMS service is better. If you got fire guys on the, on the ambulances instead of a private company, and that's not to throw shade at, at private AMBO providers, but you know, when you got a crew that's running out of the same station and is familiar with each other and you're kind of held to the same, to a different standard, perhaps. Um, I, yeah, I think, I just think it's different. It's a little better. Yeah. And I, I, I've had that conversation with people before too. This was years before, uh, the fire service got as deeply in AMS as it was that we had a private contract service that was serving Richmond that I worked for before I went to the fire department. And the owner of that was started teaching these, uh, university level classes. That's where I started going back to college and getting some, some courses in. And he was always, the fire department shouldn't be doing this. And I'm like, well, maybe it should, because there's all these other advantages to it. You know, if, if nothing else, you get this economy of scale and job opportunities. Now, is it, is it sensible that that person comes into this job and they're going to ride an ambulance and they're going to be an ambulance supervisor and they don't have much more space to go from there? Or do you come in the fire department? You can do ambulance stuff and you can do EMS stuff and you can do tech rescue and you can do helicopters and you can do prevention or whatever else you want. So the the job opportunities beyond just riding ambulances or doing QA for ambulance calls is, is exponentially larger in the fire service. At least that's what was my experience. Yeah, and I agree. And there's, I mean, there's so many different models of, across the U.S. of, of different staffing and and uh, and theories about how to how to bring people on. But if you put if you put two firefighters on an ambulance, make one of them a medic, now they can operate on at a higher level on on a lot of calls, including fires, extrication, you know, anything where you're going to put turnouts on. It's a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Tag, you're a multifaceted tool, if you will. So, yeah. <clears throat> let's, let's transition into um, to kind of what, what got us here today uh, in the topic at hand. Um, you, you know, stress and mental illness in the fire department. I don't know, maybe a mental illness isn't the right word for it, but the, the mental impact and the mental toll it takes on people in the job today. Um, and how it happens. And it obviously had a, a tremendous impact on you over the course of your career. Um, is there, is there one incident or that, that kind of triggered things for you moving forward? Or was it the, the cup literally filled up to a certain point that, that, you know, f from a mental perspective, it became overwhelming, uh, kind of walk me into that process of when, the, when you kind of realize, Hey, I might have an issue here. I didn't realize that I had an issue until it was too late and I wouldn't have admitted it. Um, and I certainly couldn't have recognized it. And I worked over an interesting span, um, during the, during the kind of evolution of the fire department, you know, back in the early nineties, our men, our firefighter mental health care was, um, Hey, man up. That doesn't bother me. Why is it bothering you? 
Like what, what's your problem? Um, and there were no resources available that gradually changed into CISM. And for those that haven't heard of that, it's critical incident stress management. And that was kind of the first time where other firefighters were helping each other. But I got to generalize in a way and, and say that that largely existed um, in the form of a firefighter showing up after a critical incident, talking about the call, and then telling the crew, all right, guys, take good care of yourselves tomorrow. Go, you know, if you, you know, go golf, work out, just, just do some good self-care and, and, uh, keep doing what you're doing. And that was it. There, you know, there's no, there was no mental health or professional follow-up. Was it, was it that we didn't understand the impact of those types of things on us as responders or if you, Robbie, if you th- think about when re- react, like think about when you first heard the term PTSD and it was Gulf war. So, you know, you're, you got guys coming back like early nineties, mid nineties, where, where problems are starting to present themselves. And they, I think that the military and society realized, okay, we, we got issues. This isn't just, he's shell shocked, right? Like a, a Vietnam veteran or a world war veteran. Um, yeah, uncle Bob, he's shell shocked. Every time there's a loud noise, you know, he hits the deck. Um, I think in the nineties, we started to recognize that something was happening. Like there was, there was something going on but we were looking at that in the military. We weren't really looking at it in, in uh, public safety yet. So CIS, CISM comes about, and I think it helped some, but it, it wasn't as effective as I think anybody thought it would be. So then that, uh, during that time, I, I, did, I had several calls where there was a CISM team that came and we did a debrief or a defusing or a hot wash or whatever the hot term was at the, at the time for what we were doing. And, um, it, it helped it, but it was a, you're, it was putting a bandaid on an amputation. I mean, it just wasn't, I mean, it just wasn't going to stop the flow. You know, it wasn't going to fix the problem. Then that evolved into, peer support and peer support was a different type of training program. And it was a a good model for a, for a small city that doesn't have the mental mental health resources or the financial resources to, to put this stuff in place for their folks. Um, and you've got, you've got firefighters that are talking to each other. So there's, there's a good level of trust there because you got, you know, we, we trust, each other. If you're on the outside, uh, uh-uh, not talking, mm-hmm. you know, not talking to you. Um, and it was, it was, I would say just okay. But again, what it lacked was we would have that meeting after a, after a critical incident, but there wasn't necessarily the guidance and the professional follow-up after that there, nobody said this guys did a great job and I'll be the battalion chief, right? guys, I'm really proud of you. You did an amazing job. I want to keep supporting you in any way I can. Um, are you ready to go back in service? 
All right. <laughs> yeah. And, and somebody go. would go out and hit the button on the MCT and go AOR or AIQ, and we would start running calls again. What we needed was this. Hey, guys, I'm really proud of you. You did an amazing job. If you're ready to go back in service, we'll do that. But here's what you got to do. You got to follow up with your own mental health professional within the next month because this call is going to bother you. And you know what? It would bother me. I've been on, I've been on forever and I've been leading you guys forever. And that call would bother me. So don't think there's any kind of judgment here with, with using your resources. And if you have a problem with that, or, or you have a problem moving forward with getting resources and help, reach out to me or reach out to, to your peer support folks and we'll get you taken care of. That's what we needed. But that's what didn't happen. Because you have a big city with a bunch of different battalion chiefs. You've got different franchises of the same restaurant. And, and there's, not, there's not really a good way to overcome that other than having a really strong fire chief that brings his battalion chiefs in a lot and says, listen, boys and girls, here's what's up. Here's what I believe in. Here's what we're doing. Here's what I expect all of you to believe in and do also. And if that, if that doesn't line up for you, uh, then we can find you a different spot somewhere, but this is how it's going to go. And that, that feeling within me, I think comes from, comes from being a comp- bumped up as a, uh, as an acting captain, as an, as a company officer, I always knew that if I took care of my people, they were going to, they were going to perform and they were going to take care of me. So when I, um, when I had a big problem, peer support was available and an EAP was available through the city. So an EAP is an employee assistance program. There is a list of providers that you can choose from. And I'm speaking just for what I had, you know, other EAPs vary from this, but generally speaking, this is the model list of providers that you can choose from. You go online and you, you know, you look through whatever it is. Like if you need family health counseling, if you need relationship counseling, uh, if you need trauma counseling, you, you find somebody that, that self-proclaims themselves as a, you know, an expert in that, in that field. And you reach out to them and you try to get an appointment and you may have to wait three months. Because everybody key, else is trying to get it. there on try. Right? Yeah. So yeah. The, the resource was there and I actually used it. Um, I, had a, I had a near fatal motorcycle accident in 09. And that was my first experience with PTSD after that. I would crash my motorcycle every night as I was falling asleep. So I went in and, and used the EAP and I, and I got hooked up with a counselor. And... I had been going to that counselor for almost 10 years and then I, and I'm still, I'm running traumatic calls. I'm going back to her on an as needed basis for what I would call a tune up. And I'm trying to push that, you know, within my crew because we, you know, there's four of us that experience basically the same thing. And I would, I would tell the guys, Hey, I don't know about you boys, but I'm going in for a tune up. I got a, I got an appointment scheduled in two days during our four day I need it. That was rough. And, and no, nobody else ever did it. They're like, yeah, I'm good, man. Yeah. Good for you. 
So that's, that kind of spawns a couple of questions in my head for that, you know, and I think I remember the story you talking with Andy about that motorcycle crash. It was, that was a three day, a three event thing in one day for your motorcycle racing days. Yeah. That was a great story. But, um, was the, was kind of that 10 years or that ongoing, um, checkups, were they related to the motorcycle crash or was that, was there a, an incident you ran at work? that triggered something for the motorcycle crash or was it something you ran at work that was a standalone event that kind of made you realize I need that tune up. I need that checkup from the neck up. Yeah. Or was it a combination of all of those things? There were, I mean, as soon as you, as soon as you put on a blue shirt and get on a fire truck, you can be exposed to trauma. Doesn't matter if you're on a, in a volunteer department and that, I mean, they arguably experience more and worse because they're running people they know in the city they, know, they live yeah. in. Um, or high volume. I mean, I, I ran a lot of calls. Um, and, and the trauma kind of started from the beginning. And I thought that I was, <laughs> dude, at first I thought I wanted it. I, I wanted, I wanted house fires where I had to pull off a rescue. I wanted cardiac arrest calls where I had to push epiatropine lidone and do the whole thing and defib them. Um, but then at some point it changed. And that's when the, that's when all that stuff started to affect me. And the motorcycle incident was actually solved in a reasonable amount of time. That took a few months of work, but I was able to move past that. But the calls at work that, that really affected me, um, there, there was no fixing it with this therapist. And I, and, and that goes to, to show that you don't, you don't always find the right therapist right away. Um, unfortunately it's hard to, it's hard to know what good therapy and what not great therapy is, especially when you're, when you're in the midst of needing it. Um, but I think, you know, something is better than nothing in a lot of cases, but yeah, I, I ran a con space call where, um, we had two victims we had two patients at the start. We were, we were in rescue mode. We're getting our gear set up and that, that confined space, which was a 24 foot deep below grade, uh, grease, tra grease trap as part of a, it was a sewer component, um, four foot diameter pipe, um, that was vertical. And these two workers had gone in there to replace a, uh, pump. And they were overcome by H2S, hydrogen sulfide, sewer gas. And um, while we were on scene, that space refilled with product or sewage. And if that H2S didn't get the two guys, um, they they drowned. So kind of kind of right, you know, while we were there. I mean, I had a Tyvek suit on, I had my class three harness, I had my escape bottle with supplied air going, I, you know, we had our tripod, tripod set up, we were ready to get in. And my company officer made the, that brutal call that nobody wants to make uh, to switch over to recovery mode. Um, so we called in a vac truck, uh, multiple hazmat teams, multiple TRT companies. This, this was one of the biggest TRT calls that the Valley has ever had. Um, and I wound up being the one to go in and, and package the first victim and, and form part of that, part of that plan to do so. And, 
on the one hand, that gave me a little bit of notoriety because I was, I was training Valley departments in technical rescue at that point and had been for a while. So I think as a trainer, when you're, when you're teaching people a subject, if you've actually done it <laughs> multiple times, it gives you a lot of credibility. I, I actually got recognized in a couple of bars after that. There, there were some, some guys, some fire guys. Uh, hey, are you that, were you on that call? Uh, yeah, that was me. Uh, you're that guy. So, but, and I mean, it's so newsworthy when there's a helicopter rescue or when there's a, uh, you know, any kind of TRT call that, that gets press. So I wound up in front of a camera doing interviews because at some point my captain got tired of doing it. It's like, Booker, you do it. I'm sick of being on TV. All right, we'll get ice cream on the way home. So that call, that confined space call was one uh, that kind of tipped the scales for me in a lot of ways. That was, um, I was working on a, a busy municipal technical rescue team and the things that I had to do on that call were were way out of the ordinary even for us um so yeah I started having signs and symptoms of, of PTSD after that did was there that um critical incident stress debriefing after that call or was that seen yeah it's just a routine kind of an event they're not they didn't pull in that peer support group, the CISD team, any of that, or, or how did that, what was the aftermath of the day or so after that call? Like? It was, it was a little bit complicated by the fact that I wound up in the hospital as part of that call. Um, I was in a level B non-encapsulating suit. So it's a, that's a hazmat suit. That's, you know, that's fully encapsulated except for your face pretty much. Um, and this was in August in Phoenix in Phoenix. <laughs> and I, and I feel warm. Yeah. I, I filled the, the boots up to about mid calf with sweat. Uh, so I wound oh, up, man. yeah, I was, I was, uh, heat exhaustion pretty close to worse than that. And, uh, yeah, I got transported to the hospital. So that traditional, like, let's go back to the station and, and, uh, and get things put back together didn't exist. And that was that put things back together is where the, where the peer support team usually comes in further at that point, you know, the, the, there was a point where my crew had over 90 years of cumulative experience in the fire service. We were rock hard and everybody knew it. And if we showed up on a fire scene, we could take an assignment from an incident commander and they knew that they never had to check back in on us until we talked to them and said we needed something or gave them a status update or a location. Um, we, we were the go-to guys up for everything. And I, you know, I'm precepting paramedics. So our, our medic skills were, were second to none. My partner was amazingly experienced and yeah, we were, we were able to deliver the goods over and over and over again, no matter what the call was. And because of that, we were, we were jerks. When somebody came forward with a, with a PTSD, uh, 
issue. We made fun of them, man. We'd get back in the truck, put the headsets on, come back from a call. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? He's going out on PTSD. What? He, what has he done? Like we just, you know, we just pulled off all these rest, you know, and, and, you know, we, we all compare ourselves, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realize that there was a problem until it, until it was too late, honestly. When did you recognize and how did that manifest itself to you, to you? And you realize that, and, and did you do anything in the, did you reach back out for that checkup, uh, from your counselor? Did, did anything happen there? And, and what was the path forward for you from there? I, I did reach out and I kept going to to counseling here and there and it presented itself like this. My PTSD signs and symptoms included flashbacks where I could see, I could smell, I could feel the event happening again. Those mostly came to me in the form of nightmares, but sometimes if I was driving by where that scene was, that would put me right, right back there. So dude, I, I have a, I have avoided Scottsdale road and, and uh, bell in Scottsdale ever since that call. Um, and that's another one avoiding, avoiding sights, sounds, and smells that remind you of, of your trauma. So I was doing that. I was avoiding manhole covers. I was avoiding anywhere that I could possibly be exposed to, to just a whiff of sewer gas. Hypervigilance was another big one for me. I was on edge constantly. And my, my girlfriend and I would go to a restaurant. I would, would never sit with my back to the door. And I always scoped out the whole place. But you know, as we were walking in, including who was there, but also where are the exits? What would I do if? Hypervigilance. Um, social isolation, big one. And I was a competitive cyclist at a, basically a professional level for a lot of years. And there, there's no better way to, to get away from people than to train 20 hours a week out on the road or on the mountain bike by yourself alone. So I was avoiding people. Um, rumination was another one and catastrophizing. So I would think of something over and over and over again. I couldn't get it out of my head. I I would ruminate on a topic. And more often than not, that topic would become like life change, like, like the worst thing in the, in the world, the worst thing imaginable. I would turn it into a catastrophe. I would catastrophize. So all, all of these things are, are presenting themselves, but I didn't connect the dots because I, I, I was in denial that this could affect me. Was there, was there anybody on the outside, girlfriend, coworkers, uh, friends outside of the department who would have noticed some kind of change in you? And that's kind of what was one of my questions is if I'm a, you know, back in the day when I was a supervisor and, or today when I know people who are still in the job, what are, what, what would I have seen in you change from before that confined space call till after that, when you're in this, in this stage now? where you're becoming isolated. And I'm assuming that that would be a, something I would look for. Is there anything else that, that the outside observer would have seen in you that would have triggered, should have triggered them to go, Hey, Rick, Rick's, Rick's got some issues here. Let's, let's do, let's, let's us do a buddy check in on them and, and see what's up. The presentation was tricky for me because a lot of the things that I presented with looked like something else. 
So I was a successful bicycle racer and motorcycle racer. Um, they just looked at that as, wow, a guy can kick ass on a bike. But I was kicking ass on a bike because I was spending 20 hours training. Um, speaking of training, I was, I was doing quarterly training every Tuesday for the entire, um, and it rotated quarterly is what I mean, but I was training every Tuesday with, uh, the East Valley TRT teams. So I would take a, I would spend a quarter and I would train them on, and I would be the instructor on confined space. And then the next quarter, quarter, uh, high angle rescue, then the next quarter mountain rescue. It started out as just one topic at, you know, in the, at the beginning, when I started as an assistant instructor, then it turned into every topic. Then I was the lead instructor. Plus I was precepting new paramedic students when I was on duty. I was engulfing myself, burying myself in training and trying to increase my own skills and everybody's skills around me at work so that I could try and avoid those, those catastrophic outcomes that every department and every firefighter, every paramedic has as a matter of course. I mean, those things just happen as, as a firefighter, you're going to experience those things. But I found myself really just exceeding reason and, and trying to, to just excel at everything. And I did, I mean, I was the guy on the news. I was the guy under the helicopter, you know, but you couldn't recognize that as a symptom of PTSD, unless you were real, unless you really knew what you were looking at. Um, but outwardly maybe anger, you know, I, I kind of became an angrier person. Um, became a drinker, never to like an alcoholic level, but, you know, because I was still competing, you know, I was still racing bicycles. So, um, but if I, if I spent time with people from work, we were drinking. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it would have been hard for, for anybody to recognize. Definitely. Well, well, what if, if, let's say I is a supervisor or a coworker, if somebody had approached you in that phase and said, Hey, Rick, I really think you, you, we're having issues here. What would have been your reaction or what would have been the right way to approach you in that case? Or maybe even somebody not like you, who you may think is, is having these issues going forward. That's kind of my, the, the bigger question I want to ask is what, what, what do those of us who aren't having the issue today, I won't say have never had the issues cause I've had them, what is that outside observer and what's the best way to approach somebody that they think may be having those issues like you were having then, or, or, or even something different? What do you think is the best way to approach those people? This is, this is the way to do it. And it, and it all has to do with easy and hard. You have, this is, it's the easiest step. You have to start a hard conversation and ask some hard questions but once you do, dealing with the, those answers is easy. As long as you're a, a, you know, a truly supportive company officer, battalion chief, division chief, or chief of your fire department, or, you know, peer support member, whoever you are in a, in a, in a position of, of authority or a, in a leadership position, you've got to be willing to, to talk to your people. 
you've got to be willing to ask the difficult questions. And you've got to be supportive in a way that stepping forward for help isn't met with any kind of punitive action. And this is where it gets tricky because the worst thing you can do to a cop or a firefighter or a member of the military is tell them that they can't be a cop or a firefighter or a member of the military anymore. I do not want to get taken off my truck, period. That's the worst thing that you can do. We've got to understand that that stepping forward for, for help with our mental health does not guarantee getting taken off that truck. What you say in your appointment with a, with a mental health professional is protected by all the same things that your patients are protected with in the form of HIPAA. So unless you're a danger to yourself or others and you make statements to that effect to your, your uh, practitioner, you're good. It's private. That's not coming out. You're not going to get taken off the truck. Like, for, put that out of your mind. Furthermore, if getting taken off of the truck is a concern because you're going to a provider that the department is providing, go out of the department. Use your insurance. Um, use private pay. Do do whatever you got to do, but get the, you can get that care privately that's, com- that's completely disconnected from your uh, mode of service. That's, that's possible. Okay. So that, that, that should eliminate that excuse of, well, I'm, I'm just going to get taken off the truck. So that's, a, that's just an excuse. Um, yeah. As supervisors, you, you've got to make it as comfortable as possible for somebody to step forward. And here's how I would do it. Robbie, if you started coming to work uh, and I thought you could have probably gotten a DUI on the way in, or if you explode at some patients and have an outburst or any, any, of, the, any of the signs and symptoms that I mentioned that I experienced, if I was seeing that in, in you and I was your company officer, I would just have a, a friendly honest, upfront conversation with you. And it wouldn't be in the, it wouldn't be in the captain's office. We would go for a walk. We would sit on the tailboard. We would meet off duty for coffee the next morning. We would, we would be somewhere comfortable. And I would ask you if you're okay. Hey man, I got some concerns. This is what I've seen lately. It's just not the same you. You know, you used to be happy. You, you used to be energetic. You used to be interested in, in, uh, in hobbies and sports and things. You used to hang out with us off duty. And, and just, it seems like all that's changed. And I'm concerned that some of the calls that we've run that have affected me also have affected you. And I can't help but think maybe they did because we were right there together doing it. What do you think? That that's how that would go. And the things that I've done are I've I've taken us away from the truck, I've taken us away from from a, a company officer and firefighter uh, role by not doing it in the in the captain's office with the door closed and the rest of the crew wondering what the hell is going on. Um, 
and I may have taken it completely out of the station. Um, so I've, I've taken that kind of almost threat of punitive action, which is what we, every time I got called in, all right, look, I probably was in trouble every time I got called in the captain's <laughs> office, but that's, that's what's up when you get called in there. So you take that away. So you kind of take that back of the mind thought of punitive action away from your subordinate, but you got to relate to them because you were on the, you've run these calls. You've led these people into battle. You've done all the same things. In fact, they may have affected you more than them because you had all of them to think about and protect, right? And make tactical decisions and communicate and move. But when you're approaching your subordinate, you say, hey, man, that affected me too. That fire, that fatality fire we had last month, that really sucked. And it, you know, I thought it might have sucked for you too. And I see that it, it could be affecting you. Are you all right? That, that's all it takes. But here's what I see in company officers. They're afraid to do that. And they're afraid to do that because of a few things. They're afraid to do that because of their culture because of the fire department that they were raised in, because if they're in, if they're in a company officer role, they've been around for a while. And it, that might've been before taking care of your people's mental health was in vogue, which it really is now. I mean, if you're a company officer out there listening to this and you don't think that taking care of your, your people uh, from a mental health standpoint is, is a current, a, a current topic and a current problem, um, reach out to me. We need, we need to have a chat and I can probably explain a few things to you. If I hear those, I'm going to, I'm going to have the same conversation with them. The thing I took away from, from what you, you just said is um, when you see a change in something with that individual or yourself, yeah. right? right? It's that, it's that disinterest in something that was interesting, that disengagement with people you were usually engaged with that, that shorter fuse in traffic or whatever the case may be that triggers the temper. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's kind of good and that, that, from the supervisory training I've had on the topic that was always here, here are the signs you need to look out for in the, the crews that you're supervising. But I think more importantly than that, you've got to know those people normally you know, as a paramedic, you always knew, you always learned yeah, what the normal baseline. was. So yeah. you would know the abnormal, right. Same thing kind of goes here is know the people in their normal environment or their normal mental state. So you can kind of pick up on those subtle deltas between normal and a something's going on here. And, and the, the, the reason I was kind of going down the path of, is it a, because you're right back in the day, it was critical incident stress debriefing. It was always that one specific, that one call that was the issue. Let's, let's have the meeting. Let's have the peer support group come in, click that's over with. Let's move on to the next thing. And it's, it seems that that's not the case anymore. It's that, it's that confined space rescue you went on on top of the, the issues with the motorcycle accident on top of the issues with the, the kid that you ran six weeks before that on top of fill in the blank and years and decades of, of trauma just piled up on top. And now my scales are overloaded and yeah, there, there we're going to have There's issues. a cumulative effect. And, um, for, for perspective, I did 27 years in Scottsdale and I, I, I did kind of a conservative estimate, but I ran up, I ran over 16,000 calls for service during my career. So, so I've, I ran a lot of calls 
those weren't all burning buildings and babies, but do the math. And, you know, there was, there was plenty in there. And a lot of that was technical rescue. And those are, those are calls that, um, not only are they kind of epic career calls, but you're, a lot of times you're performing your job tasks in an environment where you could be hurt or worse. Um, so the things that look cool, like a, like flying in a helicopter, well, that was one of the most dangerous things I did because the, because helicopters glad like bricks. Yeah. Helicopters glad like bricks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what all this culminated in for me was committing suicide on September 12th of 2019. And I say committed suicide, you know, I'm not a ghost here. Like, okay, I, I made it. Uh, but I, I acquired a large amount of narcotics from uh, the backup medical gear at my station. And I checked into a hotel room and administered a lethal injection. And I was probably about three minutes away from taking my, my final breath uh, when several factors aligned and, and I got rescued. After that, I got treatment at a place called the IAFF Center of Excellence in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. I was inpatient there for 45 days. And within 30 minutes of sitting down with Dr. Abby, their um, on-staff psychiatrist, she had diagnosed me with uh, major depressive disorder, severe anxiety, and complex PTSD. And the complex portion of that is just that cumulative effect. Okay. And you think I believed her? Nope. I mean, I was, I was in denial of, of that for a while. Even, even then, even, <clears throat> even then, even I mean, after the dude, I thought I was going back to the truck. I'm like, okay, fix me yeah. guys. Cause I, I'm, I need to get back to work. And, uh, yeah, as the days wore on and as I learned what the signs and symptoms of PTSD were and the, and the fact that I'd been, been experiencing those for years, I realized that, that I could not go back to work, that it was literally going to kill me. Um, so the process started of, um, uh, of retiring. So I, I did, re- I, I filed a, um, I filed a work comp claim with the city and I retired through the, through the public safety pension system also. And to my knowledge, that claim that I made for, uh, for PTSD, uh, as a work comp injury was the first one in Arizona that got approved. And I think a big, big factor in that was the Craig Tiger Act, which, uh, which establishes PTSD as presumptively caused by work in, in, um, in public safety, uh, much the same way that, that cancer legislation has done the same, right? We've got our presumptive cancer stuff. So I came back from that, um, stabilized, aware of what I was experiencing and why, and I continued my recovery but I formed something, um, something interesting that I've been doing. And the start of it was, was a, a composition book that was handed to me when I checked into the center. And I asked, you know, what that was for. And, and they said, well, you should start journaling. So I, you know, I sat there and 
a couple days later, I decided, all right, I got to figure out, I should just start at the beginning. And I wrote in 1993, I walked into my local fire station and asked if there's any jobs here because that's how it started. And that was the start of my book. So that's I, how the book, that's how the book starts too. That is how the I book starts. Looking at excerpt, so yeah. took three years to finish. Uh, a lot of that was because some of those chapters were real hard to write. Um, but yeah, I wrote flame and fortune, how the fire service almost killed me. And, um, and I put together an LLC and I put together a, a website and some social media presence. So now RB603 is my company. RB603.net is my website. And I do public speaking and advocacy work in support of first responder and military mental health and wellness. So I've spoken to everything from volunteer departments to professional departments, uh, the military, and I continue to, to travel around and, and do that. So in order to be able to do this, I had to get to a point where I could tell my story without falling apart. I had to be able to tell people what I went through without it having a, a, an ill effect on me. And as soon as I got to that point, man, I started doing it. I appeared on some some really big podcasts like this and, and talked to some folks and, and started getting the word out that, you know, here's, here's my story. Here's what I do. And then people started reaching out to me. Hey, when can you get to Gulf Shores, Alabama? When can you, when you, can you get to, to Calgary, Alberta, um, and everywhere in between, um, to talk to, to our organization. And here's what I've found. And I have found that there's one of two things. There's a small department or a volunteer department that has no resources at all. My audience for them is the fire board, the town council, the mayor, whoever has control and the ability to provide resources. That's my goal for those people that don't have resources. Or a big department that has a robust mental health program and the resources are available, but people are afraid to use them because of the culture surrounding them. So depending on what that audience is, I do research when I, when I show up to the organization that usually takes a day or two ahead of time. And then I present a program in front of a, a group or in front of multiple groups over the course of days and support and encourage what the people that called me there want. So most of the time people are calling me to help encourage their staff to use the resources or make their staff available of what, as to what resources are even available to them. So I deliver a, a custom tailored presentation to their group, um, do some book sales afterwards. And then I, I will spend an unlimited amount of time doing Q and a, and that, that usually takes a while because we'll, we'll sit, I'll sit down at the end of the stage and I'll have a, I'll have a conversation with people. And I, and I tell them, I will answer any question you have, anything. And if I don't have the answer, we'll figure it out together or figure out where to go to find the answer. So that's what I do. And I, I absolutely love it. I'm, I'm still helping people, you know? And I've gotten that just from this conversation and a few minutes we spent talking beforehand and you made that comment. I'll answer any question you got before we got in that, before we hit record. So uh, I appreciate yeah. that. And, and sharing that story, I, I, a couple other kind of questions that come into my mind in that 
whether it was during the journaling process of writing the book or the formal writing of the book process and, and replaying those incident scenarios, the emotions, the, the, the events surrounding did, did that, I don't want to say relapse, or maybe it was a relapse. It drove you back into that kind of negative mental space, or was it a help to help drag you further along the recovery path? Yeah. The answer is yes. So both. Um, but here's what was happening. Uh, once I had started writing the book and when I was back home, I had all the tools that I had gained from the, from the center of excellence. And for those that don't know, the IFF center of excellence provides mental health and substance abuse treatment to union members. So fire department, ambulance, whatever you're on, if you're, if you're part of the IFF, uh, you can, you can go to the, the center. So what I left there with was a robust amount of tools and coping mechanisms for when I was experiencing a, a, a traumatic memory or something that was triggering to me. Now I knew how to deal with it. So yeah, man, there were a couple chapters where I had, um, I had calming music that I played. I had a candle that I, that I liked, uh, that put me in the, in, you know, in the right headspace. And I had to, I had to just remind myself, dude, you're in a safe place. Just let's get it out. And it was kind of cathartic and, and brought some, some closure in a, in a certain way. Um, when I was, when I was putting these things out, typing the, the, the story. And then as I read those chapters over and over again to people and, and got feedback and, and then, uh, you know, even just over the last 11 days recording it and going and reading it out loud, I read my entire book out loud over the last 11 days, there were chapters that were tough. I mean, if you listen to it, you're going to hear me kind of breaking down you know, my voice cracks and guess, guess what? I left it in there because I don't right. care. It makes it genuine. Nobody's it's, it's, and it's genuine. Yeah. And here's the deal. If somebody That's listens right. to that and says, what a, what a wuss, I, I'll look at that and go, yeah, whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but I think most people would, will listen to it and probably have the same, the same reaction to some of the stuff that I, that I, some of the stories that I tell in that book. Um, yeah, it's, and I, I just picked the high points that's that what's in that book is a small portion of, of kind of what I've chose, you know, had to choose from. Man. Well, I, I, I told you we were shoot for an hour. We're well over an hour and 20 minutes now. So yeah. uh, we'll kind of land this, this plane, so to speak. And I, I'll say, Rick, thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Again, this is just one platform you'll share it on. I've heard you on other platforms. I know you're out there talking and speaking with people and sharing that story. And I, I am fully confident that somebody might not have come up to you during one of those events and said, Hey, thank you. I've got issues and here's what I'm going to do a result of it. But there's probably thousands more that are in the back of the room going, I see where I'm screwed up. I'm going to go get help. And you're saving people through that path as well. So thank you for that. And, um, I'm thankful that uh, you were unsuccessful at, at your attempt and thankful all those stars lined up because I've heard that story as well. And I'm, I'm very grateful all those pieces fit together that you're still here with us today and, and sharing this story. So yeah. thanks for that. Thank you so much. And people can people can uh, get, a, get a hold of the book 
And yeah, that's and what that was. Nick, that how do you get the book? Yeah. Where's the Where's the best? You know, you mentioned you just recorded the book, so it's going to be a few weeks or months until that audio version is available. Can people get right. people can get the hard copy today? Where's the best place for them to access the book, or, or when is that audio version going to be out? Yeah, you can get Flame and Fortune in in print or e e reader versions anywhere you get those things. So uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple. Um, that's the, that print copy is available in, in, uh, 19 different outlets worldwide and the audio book, I'm going to release that on November 1st, and that'll also be available any, anywhere you can get an audio book. Cool. And you're, you're pretty active on Instagram. I've been following you the last few weeks and some of your travels, uh, <laughs> are you, you going to put out something when that happens through Instagram? Is that the best social platform you've got? And your, your handle there is Rick butcher booker. I say butcher. It's Rick, Rick Booker, B-U-C-H-E-R 603 uh, on Instagram. Is that the best place to kind of watch and keep up with what you're doing? It is. I've got a pretty good Instagram following, but um, everything that I put on there gets cross posted onto Facebook as well. And then I've got a presence on, on LinkedIn that I'm, uh, that I'm building. And as that grows, I think that's going to probably be a better professional resource for, for people to reach out to me for work. Um, and you know, Robbie, with, with regard to this whole mental health thing and everything we talked about, I think it all starts, uh, from a leadership standpoint. And those leaders that are the ones that can reach out to me and get a hold of me, uh, either for just for help, uh, with what they're doing, if they're putting a peer support program together or they've got, or they're working in a culture that's, that's not real supportive of firefighter mental health. Or if you want to get me to come and talk to your academy, that would be, a, that's the best place to start. Um, talking to, talking to a fire academy, having somebody like me show up and say, look, I did this for 27 years. I'm not a beginner. And this had an effect on me. This, this was, this was serious, but, but I think it's important to know that my goal is not to speak and have everybody in your department retire with a mental health problem. Because if I could still be climbing on the truck right now and running calls, that's what I want to do. And my goal is to have, have firefighters remain mentally healthy and able to, to serve a full and fulfilling career and to not just survive their career, but to thrive during it and after. So that's a, that's a message of mine is a message of hope and one of, of resource availability and I can definitely relate because I've been through all of this. Yeah, that kind of ties back to that whole, you, you went to teach technical rescue because you were you had some credibility in doing the job. I think you're ex, expertly qualified to talk about this part of the job, so to speak, because of your background and experience here. Yeah. So, Rick, Unfortunately, I am. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. It's unfortunate you went through it, but fortunate that you're still here to share it with, with us and everybody else who's listening and, and will For listen sure. in the future. So yeah. just a quick shout out to that webpage again, rb603.net is uh, where they can get in touch with you officially, see, find out more information about the book for sure. And uh, if anybody wants to hook up or catch up with me, firehouselogbook at gmail.com is the email. Uh, Twitter is FD Logbook and Instagram is FD Logbook Podcast. And uh, Rick Booker, thanks again for for sharing your story with with me today and ongoing for the fire service and uh, safe travels you bet robbie thanks for having me